0: guardian we love podcasts not only do we make dozens of award winners ourselves but we also write about our favorite podcasts from around the world too every week our column here here that's here as in hearing and here as in where comes out filled with recommendations from you our listeners we sift through them all to find the hidden gems that the podcasting world has to offer These podcasts are often small yet mighty productions, which you probably wouldn't find highlighted on your usual podcatchers. So, if you're looking for your next podcast or have one that you want to share with the world, sign up for our weekly Hear Here newsletter at theguardian.com forward slash podmail and send us an email at podcasts at theguardian.com.
1: Hello, this is Brexit Means, the weekly podcast in which we at The Guardian attempt with increasing desperation to dissect the Brexit rabbit, frozen rigid in the glaring headlights of the EU and its own insane contradictions so you don't have to. So this week... The clock, to nick a phrase from a certain white-haired and smooth-spoken EU negotiator, is ticking. And as usual, not a lot seems to be happening. Three weeks from that crunch EU summit, at which the EU expects answers from the UK to the two burning and related questions of Brexit, i.e. what kind of customs arrangement do you want, and how are you going to solve the Irish border, nothing suggests the government has got anywhere on either. However, don't hold your breath. But some Brexit action might finally be just around the corner. While well, the government is reported to have postponed its planned white paper on the future relationship until after the summit on June the twenty-eighth, it does now seem to be bringing the withdrawal bill back to Parliament next week on June the twelfth. Now. That's the bill that suffered 15 defeats in the House of Lords. And those 15 key amendments are apparently set to be debated in one marathon session, starting at midday and ending at midnight. So, we'll be discussing that... We'll also look at what seems to be the growing assumption around Europe that regardless of what happens in that vote in Westminster, not a lot looks like being actually achieved Brexit-wise at the June summit. And finally, a word about the mounting pressure on Theresa May from business, both UK and European, for some clarity, and what recent events in Europe, Spain and Italy might mean, if anything, for Brexit. So, a veritable rabbit smorgasbord in prospect, and I'm joined in the studio by Guardian columnist, Raphael Baer, and on the line by Brussels correspondent, Jennifer Rankin, although she's actually in Luxembourg today. Welcome to you both. Raphael, can I start with you? What can we deduce then about the state of the government from those two slightly startling facts that have come out this week, that it looks very likely that the white paper on the future relationship has been postponed until after the summit, despite the fact it was promised this month, and that... The government seems to be expecting Parliament to debate this uh, a host of crucial Lords amend- amendments, mainly to do with keeping the UK in the customs union and the single market. So quite important ones in, in
0: just one sitting. What does that tell us? Uh, well, uh, broadly, I think it tells us that, that the government is, if not in a state of panic, then sort of fending off a state of panic about what actually to do in the broadest possible sense strategically with brexit now i mean uh, the the simple fact is you, you, you can't do the white paper on, on the future relationship because you can't even begin to outline a credible account of what Britain's long-term relationship with or the UK's long-term relationship with the European Union will be when you haven't really understood what your relationship with a single market is going to be. That's the biggest economic question, uh, and by extension also the customs union. And since that hasn't been settled, as you said earlier, and can't really be settled until um, you've sort of uh, dealt with the relative aspects you know, of, the, of the parliamentary debate, which we'll come to in a second. Obviously, the whole thing has to be kicked into touch. But we're desperately short of time now uh, to, to do it after the June 28th summit. is sends a signal to our European partners, essentially, that uh, we're not really serious about their timetable for negotiation, uh, which just scours even more goodwill away from the negotiations. I mean, and then on that, the point about the The parliamentary timetable. I mean, the most extraordinary thing about this uh, is that it's not as if Parliament has anything else to do. I mean, it's very, I mean, so there were things promised in the Queen's speech last year that haven't even materialised, even Brexit things that haven't materialised. There was supposed to be a bill on immigration. Uh, there's a customs bill which is sort of stalled in the early stages. Uh, there's another trade bill also sort of stalled in the early stages. You know, Parliament has got plenty of time on its hands. And therefore, to say, oh, hang on a second, we weren't going to debate this. We didn't. We, we kicked this into the long grass. Oh, no, hang on. Now we're going to retrieve it from the long grass and we're going to examine it in one session uh, is quite Obviously, a very, very cynical attempt to try and sort of ram through a, a legislative necessity without any proper debate or scrutiny. And I think it will backfire, to be honest. Well, I was going to ask you that. I mean, where, how do you think it will go? Because presumably, you know, expecting
1: prospective rebels to discuss issues as important as this in
0: one 12-hour sitting isn't exactly going to kind of mollify them, is it? Um No, certainly not. And and in, in my experience of, of following parliamentary debates on all sorts of issues and votes, and when government and whips get together and try and use parliamentary procedure to sneak something through or pull off some subterfuge, it always backfires. It really brings out this sense of the parliamentarians sort of slightly arrogant sense of their own dignity and and the, 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 the gravitas of their role and they get very annoyed. So I don't think it's going to make a rebellious MP feel any less rebellious that the government is trying to do it this way. I mean ultimately it still comes down to, I mean the parliamentary procedure stuff is interesting but it ultimately still does just come down to arithmetic. Do you have enough MPs who really want to signal to the government you know, on the two really significant issues. One, putting in statute that you should seek membership, essentially, of the customs union, which you might get... And the other one, putting in statute that the government should aspire to negotiate membership of the EEA, essentially staying in the single market, which I think is much harder to get.
1: Okay, well we'll see what comes out of that, Jennifer. I mean, I suppose it, you know it's possible that some kind of clarity could come out of that vote on June the twelfth if the government loses on those key amendments that Raphael was was talking about. But the key one on the customs union, um, as you mentioned, I mean, it doesn't it doesn't really help matters because it doesn't insist on the UK staying in a customs union or the customs union. It just demands that the government explain to Parliament what steps it has taken to negotiate the UK's participation in a customs union with the EU. So so there's no real resolution in view, even if the government gets defeated there. I mean, has Brussels basically given up on getting any kind of sense of what Britain might want until the last possible minute. And is there still that feeling? I was very struck last week by Michel Barnier and, and another official who gave a, a, a sort of off-the-record briefing last week. This this idea that, that you know, um, it, it, this... It, Understanding in Brussels that, that, that the UK expects the EU to sort of to change the whole way it's constructed in order that everything in Britain can stay the same. And that's still the prevailing view in, in Brussels of, of, what's, of what's being played out here.
2: Yes, that that is the the phrase that people have been using, and there's a there's a nice little backstory to the the quote as well, because it actually sort of a, a misquote from um, a novel by Tommaso di Lampedusa, The, the Leopard, which is about a, a feckless aristocratic Sicilian landowning family during the the, the mid 19th century, during the time of uh, Italy coming together as a nation. And the, the whole theme of the novel is: Can you break with uh, tradition in order to preserve your own influence? And it's actually a, a it's a theme that um, the Brussels officials love to uh, love to come back to. They like this quote. It often came up when we were talking about in, a decade ago about whether Italy or France could do pension reforms. So it's kind of interesting that it's now coming up in in Brexit negotiations. But to address the the, the big point, I think there is a feeling in in the EU that that the UK has is not really making um making enough headway in um, in sorting out what it was from Brexit on on coming to any resolution at all on the on the Irish border issue and the fact that the government has now decided to delay the publication of this white paper until after June is just seen as another sign that the government is not engaged with negotiations in in the way that the EU would like. I mean, not that people here were expecting a lot of substance from that white paper, or, and not that they were expecting a big discussion on the future relationship in a few months, but nonetheless it's seen as a sign of the the government's sort of inability to really get a grip on on Brexit and and to make any progress.
0: I think there's a there's a very sort of interesting and quite actually quite simple explanation for why that's the case and I entirely agree with Jennifer's analysis of it, which is that broadly speaking when Theresa May signed the phase 1 uh, joint agreement in December, mm-hmm. she made commitments specifically regarding the Irish border that in practical terms, as as you know, was obvious to everyone in Brussels who understood the nature of the EU as a legal entity. In practical terms, required a soft Brexit, right? And everyone signed up to that. Except the debate in the the UK discussion of what Brexit means never actually took that on board. They never, and the Conservative Party never actually internalised the basic facts of what Theresa May had signed up to. And essentially, what we've had since January, so that's you know half a year of very critical part of the negotiations is a divergence between a domestic UK discussion of what Brexit is Mm -hmm. and the actual... Reality, reality of, of what yeah. Brexit is yeah. and and so you've got people sitting in, in in Brussels on the European side in the E27 looking at the UK and saying you're talking about a thing that doesn't actually exist in any meaningful international legal context they're talking about Brexit as a figment of the domestic political imagination not as an actual thing that you can negotiate and until someone fronts up the British public and says okay we've just spent six months very closely examining the interior of our own posterior now we have to talk <laughs> about what's really available in this discussion this is the situation we're going to be well, in.
1: Precisely. Well, I mean, you you, you mentioned precisely. The, I mean, the most concrete example of that, as you say, is this question of the Irish border. It is the key priority that that is supposed to be sorted out at this summit in now less than three weeks' time. For listeners who might need a quick catch up, remember the British cabinet is still, in inverted quotes, refining two potential customs solutions for post brexit regime the customs partnership under which the uk is so will supposedly collect import duties on behalf of the eu and a more high-tech sort of magical version called max Fact. now both of those uh, alternatives the eu has already rejected as unworkable plus Brussels is also deeply suspicious of Theresa May's backstop plan. That's the one that'll come into force if nothing else is agreed, which entails leaving the whole of the UK in a customs union with the EU until that Irish border issue is solved. Now, I mean, Raphael, as you as you said, it... it it looks completely intractable. Is there, I mean, what possible way
0: out of it is there? Well, I think the, the underlying problem here is that uh, the Prime Minister, uh, Olly Robbins, her chief negotiator in Brussels, not David Davis, uh, the Chancellor of the Exchequer and certain members of the Cabinet uh, and very senior figures in on the official side in government have understood that They've done a cost-benefit analysis of Brexit and they've decided that the notional advantage you get from being able to sign your own free trade deals and the sort of the Liam Fox position uh, or the Boris Johnson position, that the most important thing about Brexit is uh, total autonomy to go off and do a you know, bilateral free trade deal with the USA. It's not worth it if you have to essentially sever um, trade ties, trade trade with, ties with, yeah. with the EU and how you want to have a close relationship with the single market and the customs union. So the sort of the practical, non-damaging, damaging imitation, as it were, Brexit, that a lot of the people actually negotiating the deal would like to achieve. To put it crudely, exchanges a sort of bogus sovereignty, what you get is a sort of pretend phantom sovereignty because you're essentially going to be a rule taker from Brussels. And what you get in exchange for that is not completely screwing your economy. It's not a great product, but it's a kind of Brexit. And then you've got a lot of people in the Conservative Party who can see that that's not a great product, but they don't want to accept the economic logic that the product they want, which is total rupture, is the one that screws the economy. That's what makes it intractable. And so the way you essentially move forward and win that argument, you have two options. Well, three options, actually. One, you do the complete screw the economy. Thing, which is not, I think, a very good one. And I don't think any responsible prime minister would want to do it. You you take the sort of the, the slightly crappy deal on the grounds so that you, at least you get something called Brexit yeah. and you get something that isn't, you don't call it carrying on in the customs union, but basically it is. Mm-hmm. Uh, and you call the hard Brexiters bluff because they just want to get out at all costs or you find some political mechanism to not do it at all. And I think the the sort of the last and the first of those options look politically very unachievable at the moment. So we're stuck with that middle one, the sl- slightly crap Brexit that just gets you over the line.
1: OK, the wishy-washy fudge. All right, well, we'll talk about future options at the end, actually, because there's quite an interesting paper that came out about that yesterday. Jennifer, I just want to come back to you on what the EU expects concretely from this summit. Um, I see Peter Tasek, who's the German government's sort of Brexit lead, uh was tweeting this week that nobody anymore really sees much scope for any progress at the end of the month and October now looks like being the moment when everything is going to have to be resolved at once which is a bit of a terrifying prospect I mean it's a very big ask isn't it so you have to sort out Northern Ireland and then the Irish border question the the whole ECJ sort of governance question and get some kind of agreement on an outline plan for the future relationship all in one mad rush And, and with a very real deadline hanging over Everybody. I mean, how feasible is that going to be?
2: Yes, it's a huge ask, especially with that deadline and at the end of March 2019, which is which is now written into law. So we've had this helpful tweet, as you say, from Peter Patzak, the the German uh, Germany's Brexit envoy. Um, but I, I I think that is broadly the view that people have in Brussels and and uh, in other um, member state capitals as well. They're not expecting very much from from this June summit. But nonetheless, I mean, some people I think would certainly like. More certainly, the, the Irish government would like more substantial progress on Ireland. They don't want the issue of the border pushed right until in, into the autumn when it could be potentially, um, they fear, traded off against other issues. But I think there, there's a broader worry as well for, for some diplomats that maybe it's just too much to do in a too short space of time. That they see this negotiation as something where the British government will have to make a concession and then we'll have to. Give the impression of, of of winning something from the EU, and and that will that something will be over the future relationship. They don't see that as something that's going to happen very quickly. As, as one person put it to me, this is not going to come out like ketchup. It's going to be you know lots of backwards and forwards. And there is a concern now that if you leave everything until the autumn, then it, it does get very difficult to 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 sort it all out. Although I suspect probably what, what might happen is that you end up with a very basic. Uh, short agreement on the future relationship and you defer the the problems uh, and all the big questions until the transition. And then then we we start counting down to the next cliff edge moment.
1: Yes, exactly. I mean, I I guess you I mean, you would probably want to put more money on the EU being able to handle that last minute bureaucratic scramble than you would on UK, wouldn't you, Raphael? I mean, the sort of in terms of kind of you know <laughs> administrative competence,
0: the signs haven't looked that great so far, have they? Uh, no, no, they certainly haven't. But um, also, it's just worth remembering that whatever is so you, you have a you agree a withdrawal agreement in mm-hmm. theory, uh, and 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 as Jennifer I think rightly said, a, a sort of very broad political statement of intent about what the future relationship will look like in the hope that you can just flesh that out in transition. But both of those things still have to go to um, motions of, uh, to be approved by both Houses of Parliament. And then the withdrawal agreement has to then go through Parliament as primary legislation, as a withdrawal agreement implementation bill, uh, you know, which will be a complete, you know, reenactment of all the fuss we've had with the current withdrawal bill, which has a frustratingly similar name but is something very different. And so, you've got to get all of that done as well, right? And what I mean,
1: what did you make of this? Quite an intriguing report from Open Europe, which is which is a you know a, a close, very close a think tank that's as close as any I think you could say to to the government, relatively sort of pro brexit or at least accepting of of brexit and quite an interesting paper on basically suggesting that the uk should accept Continued EU regulations in in goods, but and aim for kind of gradual divergence in services, in in all of that, in exchange for for single market access. Is that something that might?
0: Yeah, I think um, first of all, I mean, I think you're right. You you characterised Open Europe very well. I think for a long time they were the sort of Eurosceptic think tank, but uh, and have found themselves in a difficult position because they've been Eurosceptic broadly, sort of could make see the argument for Brexit but because they are you know thoughtful intelligent able people they also recognize some of the blunt realities and facts about what a You know, horrendous proposition it is once you actually try and do it and so what they have come up with I think is what a lot of people are describing which is the actual runway the sort of landing strip you can actually bring this thing to land on and it's not going to be perfect it's very it's similar in that way to the argument that uh, Sir Ivan Rogers made last week I don't know if you've discussed that on the podcast but a a former uh, UK ambassador to Mm. to Brussels who essentially described a situation where you're not going to get 100% sovereignty over uh, laws because the interest of, of the economy and an ongoing fluid trade with Europe mean you're broadly going to have to stay in something like the single market certainly for goods and that means you're going to have to just swallow a, a whole load of European court of justice mm. um, jurisdiction rulings. Yeah. and rulings and you're just going to have to, to sort of suck that up you're not going to get uh, the, the glorious autonomy and free trading deals that you imagined you're going to get but what you might politically be able to do uh, is carve out a bit of uh, extra freedom in terms of freedom of movement a slightly more rigorous immigration policy which would satisfy some of your legal voters the EU will complain and that's a bit like cherry picking but e- broadly you then have to try and negotiate some of your political strategic clout as a big country and and, and say well yeah you're just gonna if you don't want this thing to completely blow up uh, Brussels be help yeah, us out here yeah, exactly but it, that's that seems to me the variations of the landing strip are you accept three and a half of the freedoms mm. you pay a bunch of money you surrender your red line in the European Court of Justice and you get a bit of flexibility on services uh, and call it brexit and and, and the, the reality is now someone's got to walk, British public opinion to, uh, that, and the to press, that point, to that, so yeah. that you can yeah. then bring the plane yeah. into land yeah. without yeah. crashing yeah. into a cliff.
1: Jennifer, is that a is that a potential landing strip for, for Brussels? And and a very final quick thought um, on uh, uh, something that that certainly in the UK press um, last week, uh, you know, parts of the UK press were predicting would be a you know a bombshell for Brexit was it, you know the, the events in Italy and Spain. That's not really going to have a major impact on what we're talking about, is it?
2: No, I, I don't think so. I, th- I think actually the bigger impact will be on the on the UK debate and it was interesting to see um, how Eurosceptics and Nigel Farage for instance seized on the the problems that Italy had in, in forming a government And this was taken as evidence of, uh, of, you know, Brussels countermanding Italian democracy and and for other Eurosceptics, it was evidence of the the Eurozone in in crisis and the Eurozone was never going to work. So I I think the the bigger impact is more on the domestic debate. I mean, for the EU, it's, it's more about a distraction. It's a it's another big question for for the EU to grapple with when it's already got lots of big, demanding, difficult questions on migration, on eurozone, on rule of law. So I think it's another thing that will be in play when when Theresa May is trying to fight for space at the June summit and the October summit to make sure Brexit is on the agenda and to mm-hmm. make sure that these negotiations still still move forward. So, um, and and then to come to the Open Europe paper, I, I think, I mean, is it a landing zone? I think I wouldn't throw it, um, I don't think people here are sort of throwing it out the window, but I still think there are a lot of red flags for for people and um, for the EU, especially when it comes to the, the role of the European Court of Justice. And I think that a lot of these ideas around managed divergence or managed alignment, where the UK might have some sort of freedom to to move in its own direction, I think they still cause a lot of concern for for people in in brussels for the eu because the 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 problem is you're potentially giving a big advantage to a, a big competitor economy on your doorstep and that the and the eu goes through this very difficult process all the time of coming up with with laws that bind together 28 soon to be 27 economies and if all the national firms within the eu have to accept those laws you don't really want to Give British firms the right and the freedom to do something different. So I think there's still a lot of problems in this Open Europe paper for the EU. But nonetheless, it is it is certainly more thoughtful, more realistic than other think tank papers that we've seen. So maybe it's, it is a, it's a step in the direction that the, the government will have to go in.
1: Okay, um, we're coming towards the end. I just wanted your views before we go, um, or a little bit of crystal ball gazing, if you don't mind. We're as near as, damn it, uh, two years from the referendum now, two-year anniversary, will be in a couple of weeks' time, the Economist Intelligence Unit came up with a few predictions. It identified five key scenarios and attached a degree of probability to each and i'd just be interested in your thoughts possibility one scenario one is teresa may somehow pulls a magical special bespoke deal out of the hat and everything ends up hunky dory uh, they give that a 20 percent probability uh, scenario two the government simply caves in on most of its red lines opts to stay in the or a customs union and some bits of the single market they give that 30% Uh, scenario three the Brexiters revolt they replace Theresa May with a hardliner with a true believer but they don't hold any new elections and the Brexiters take charge of the negotiations that's seen as less likely maybe about 10% probability scenario four The Brexiters revolt but call an early election afterwards, which the Tories win... On a mandate that would allow them to kind of hang really tough on Brexit, threaten to seriously walk away without paying any money, keep the Irish border open, deregulate like there's no tomorrow turn, Britain into Singapore on sea, etc. Now, that's interestingly given a 30% chance. Um, and finally, complete collapse. No deal. Armageddon. Revert to WTO terms. All that kind of stuff. That's also less likely 10%. Interestingly, no no space there for a second referendum or a people's vote or anything like that. Or for an election that makes Jeremy Corbyn
0: prime minister. At Absolutely. So there are all sorts of <laughs> okay, Raphael, you. are uh, I mean, there's a lot to say about that, but very quickly, I think scenario two I, uh, is by far the likeliest out of those those mm. options. I think we're heading for uh, what I technically call a crap Brexit. Okay, you know, something yes. that you just uh, you can call it Brexit. Kind no of does the it. job. Yeah. You get stuck in transition. Mm. You have to flesh it out, but you're basically locked into the the, the sort of you're you're, you're a rule taker and you're coughing up and it's it's not as good as membership it's not what the hard brexiters fantasized about but Basically, they just want to get out the door, and public opinion will be in a position where it says, "Can we just stop talking about this now, please?" We've had enough, thank and you. we're locked into although, kind of crap Norway forever. Uh,
1: uh, well, is that, although uh, you know, I like Norway and Switzerland. You know, if it is that kind of a Brexit, then Brexit, Brexit literally will be never ending because you look at the Swiss and the Norwegians. I mean, you know, they they are in permanent negotiation with yeah. their with with their, their their
0: biggest trading partner and will be forever more. And that's when I think it gets interesting when you talk about what's happening in other European countries whether at some point, not between now and next March, but whether at some point the conversation about what will be the final settlement for the UK, such as could demonstrate flexibility, so that when you come to maybe wanting to expand the EU into the Western Balkans, or when you ultimately need to confront the fact that Poland and Hungary want a different, they're not gonna join the Euro and they want a different kind of EU. Is there the imagination and the flexibility to sculpt some kind of outer tier, Mm. which is sort of the renegotiation that Cameron and Osborne were trying to do in the first place, but failed to do. So in the sort of ideal, I suppose, scenario, Brexit becomes a sort of template for to solve those problems. But God, you know, we're not even close to being there yet.
1: Yeah. OK, Jennifer, which of those five, five scenarios seems most likely to you?
2: I know it's very boring if we agree, but I'm, I want to opt for, for number two as well because <laughs> I I do think that is the that is the most obvious uh, outcome that the government wants to declare Brexit has happened. Theresa May wants to to get um, the UK over the line, then she can really say Brexit. I said Brexit means Brexit, and it does, and we've done it. And then we spend the next ten years working out what what the consequences are, what it really means. And, and as you say, it is it will be a permanent negotiation. It's, it's not a, a one-off event. It's something that we'll be talking about and, and thinking about for, for years and years to come. I, I'm not so sure if I agree that there'll be an, an outer there'll be an outer tier that might or that Britain could be the model for others in the short term. Maybe that that could happen in sort of 10, 20 years. But I still think countries such as ho- um, po- Poland and Hungary want to be very much at the centre when it comes to to EU funding and, and having a place in, in the EU's own internal market. So, I mean, whether whether the UK becomes sort of out of tier or a model, I mean, that is, that is a question for, for the future, but uh, still a, a long time away, I think. Much more Brexit to come.
1: Okay, well... Many, many happy days ahead. Many happy days ahead. We'll all look forward to that with unadulterated glee. Uh, that's about it, uh, then, I'm afraid, this week. Thank you very much uh, Raphael and Jennifer for joining us. Please do subscribe, review on all your favourite podcatchers, and you can join the discussion on Twitter. You just need to search for Guardian Podcasts. If you want to get in touch with us, it's Brexit Podcast. That's all one word. Brexit Podcast at theguardian.com Till next week, then. I'm John Henley. The producer was Max Sanderson this was Brexit means and thank you very much for listening
2: for more great podcasts from the guardian just go to the guardian.com/podcasts
0: tired of ads barging into your favorite news podcasts